Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Vanessa Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Ivan Yenda Ilunga about his book, Humanitarianism and Security, Trouble and Hope at the Heart of Africa, which was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Ivan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lemis, for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Great. Uh, as you said, I'm Ivan Yenda Ilunga. I'm an assistant professor of uh, political science and uh, international relations at Selva Regina University in New Potro, Thailand, and uh, originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where I spent most of my childhood. Um, so how did you come to write this book, Humanitarianism and Security? That's a great question. Uh, I started uh, this book uh, as our part of my PhD dissertation. So it's a very much a result of uh, my PhD research and uh, dissertation, which has been uh, expanded into the book. But before that time, as I said, I was born in the DRC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, for almost 20 years, I observed the ongoing instability and struggle for peace and uh, stability uh, in the country at large, but also mostly in the eastern parts of the TRC. Starting observing it while I was still very much uh, in high school in the 1998 and so on. And uh, I was intrigued by the fact that at some point uh, we had this uh, time of uh, great conversations on how to rebuild the country and uh, and then going downhill with uh, major instabilities. So growing up in the Congo, I was very much interested in knowing what is happening and what should be done, especially when we saw the first uh, contingent of uh, the UN peacekeepers coming into the country. And over the years, so by observing that, I was very much interested in the issue, but I did not know that uh, I would find myself in the space where I research and talk about this. But it came from that... Uh, angle of personal experiences and observation. And then uh, going into my master's and PhD programs, I was then interested to say, well, I have to continue researching and talking about these issues. That's how I ended up doing it as part of my PhD research and writing it as uh, part of this book. 
So for listeners who may not be familiar, can I ask you to give us some background information about the humanitarian crisis in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Yes, definitely. Uh, I will try to start by probably putting some time frame into that. Yes, uh, the Congo has known as uh, a country that was under King Leopold uh, II. Uh, it was very much a Belgium colonies with another form of humanitarian uh, crisis, ex- human exploitations over the years and over the century. But that was the pre-independence DRC, pre-independence Congo. And coming in the 1960s uh, with the waves of independences uh, in Africa, there was uh, a search for stability. And of course, the DRC, a country with many uh, ethnicities and uh, very much huge in terms of uh, uh, the field and the ground from east to west, north to south, it's just very huge. Uh, I think the institution itself, political institutions, tried to find the ways of uh, creating a sense of stability. But uh, that was an ongoing and still very much an ongoing struggle. But uh, the first uh, humanitarian crisis that I tried to unpack uh, is uh, a humanitarian crisis based off ethnic conflict within the TRC, and then which exacerbated uh, with uh, the Rwandan genocide when the TRC opened its border to Rwandan refugees in 1994. And of course, hosting uh, refugees created the social dynamics in some communities, which became difficult to handle and manage. And then in 1997, 1998, the Congo had what has been known for, uh, by some political scientists as uh, the first uh, African world war. And that has led to massive humanitarian crisis, human rights violations, and uh, killings of civilians. And that went from 1998 to 2003. And of course, the, past that cycle, there is there is still very much an ongoing humanitarian crisis in the DRC. So this is a little bit of a timeline uh, with multiple crises that the country has had. And to put a number on that, it is estimated that uh, more than 7 million Congolese have died in uh, the very recent humanitarian crisis starting uh, in 1998. Thank you. Um, Now, one of the earliest arguments you make in the book has to do with the importance of incorporating pre-colonial security dynamics. Can you tell us about that? Yes. uh, I think one of uh, that argument came based on uh, some research and observations. As I said, in 1998, uh, 1999, up to 2003, there's been multiple attempts to restore peace and stability in the DRC. And most of these attempts were based on uh, the push for political peace agreement and peace settlement. And this is a very top-down approach to crisis and uh, conflict management. But unfortunately, apart from the fact that uh, there has been some political arrangements within the capital of the TRC, Kinshasa, and other provinces, local communities that have been impacted and affected by these uh, years of violence and instabilities did not find their ways into these peace processes. And one of the reasons is because the local dynamics of conflict and local uh, aspect 
of these instabilities have been ignored and uh, not being highly considered in the framework of peace building. So in this chapter, I argue that instability in Africa, and more specifically in the DRC, is a local or basic instabilities are local dynamics first before becoming national dynamics. So therefore, there are pillars of stability that have been observed in pre-colonial Africa for many years. And this has been the ground for political conversations and negotiations between, for instance, ethnic, conflict, uh, ethnic groups or villages or kingdoms. They had their ways, uh, indigenous ways, of uh, negotiating peace settlement and establishing long-term partnerships and collaborations. And these are some very much uh, important aspect anchored in uh, traditional African practices, which have been ignored in modern political strategies of peace settlement and peace recovery. And I argue in the book that it is important to balance uh, the modern practices of peace agreement and peace building with uh, the considerations of traditional practices which constituted for generations the pillar of stability and the functionalities of local communities. Now, the book uh, includes an extended discussion of identity crises, where you develop the concepts of denationalization, depatriotization, and hybrid identity. What do you mean by these terms? Yes. Uh, you know, when we think uh, about humanitarian crisis, uh, one of the biggest uh, considerations in modern time, we consider it as a logistical crisis. Uh, we think of uh, refugees and displaced people. And one of, uh, of course, the responses is to say, well, let's think about the basic human need, shelters, uh, food, waters, and the rest. But forgetting that the core issue in humanitarian crisis, it's very much a human crisis. And this human crisis is extrapolated into what I call three dimensions, uh, depatriotization, denationalization, and uh, hybrid identity. By I'll start probably by denationalization because that one I consider it as uh, an administrative process which... Uh, disconnect people from their home countries. For instance, you have refugees, and this is more specifically uh, targeted or geared toward refugee crisis. When someone is a refugee, it means they leave their country, and in the case of the DRC, there is conflict erupting in the eastern parts of the DRC. Congolese will cross the border. They will move to Uganda, and there there will be for instance, put in a refugee camp. And for the United Nations to pro and other international agencies to provide assistance this to these uh, displaced people known as refugees, they need to enroll them, to register them in order to get the legal and administrative protections under their new status as refugees. So by moving into that direction of uh, letting go of your own country's protection and embrace a new form of international protections by embracing a new identity, which is a refugee identity, that process constitutes what I call the process of denationalization. And in other words, embracing a new identity, 
So that itself, it's a new crisis within the consideration of individuals. So now you're no longer a Congolese, to be more specific in this case. You are, first of all, a refugee, because that becomes your legal status. And uh, you get another form of protection, another form of services. And uh, in the book, I argue that these are clear crises that one needs to think about. It's not just about geographic dislocation, uh, but it's also a human identity which is transitioning from that uh, from home country's identity to the new form of identity. And uh, going to the second uh, identity crisis, which are called depatriotization, this is more specifically for uh, the internally displaced populations who did not manage to cross the border, but they moved from their hometowns, their home villages, to other places, a place of safety. And in cases where governments were unable to provide security in their home places, and this uh, population finding themselves in the new place as groups, there is two or there are two things that can come up with, uh, can happen. One is the complete lack of trust in institution. So not feeling like being part of uh, the overall country's fabric, not being part of this national identity and therefore it becomes uh, a process of depatriotization. So people feel like, well, we don't belong to this uh, national system anymore. And there's a second dynamic. They will try to regroup and attach to their group identity. In some cases, it's just ethnic identity. And you, we have seen people saying we are more... Uh, of these particular ethnic groups than this nationality. So that process is part of uh, the identity crisis, which are called depatriotization. So the disconnect from the overall national identity to a group identity based on uh, the fact that institutions were unable to provide and protect. And uh, the last uh, aspect, best to your question, the hybrid identity, this is happening for the kids who are born in refugee camps uh, with basically no nationality. It is projected that uh, uh, humanitarian assistance, especially displacement and the establishment of refugee camps, are framed to be short-term uh, and project. But times has shown and research has demonstrated that uh, uh, the average time that people spend in refugee camps is 18 years. So here you see someone being born today and spend 18 years in the refugee camps. And which type of identity would they have? So the, the, there is a challenge between embracing the refugee identity based on the legal status of the parent or being connected to your host co countries and thinking about your home countries that you basically don't know. And this becomes a hybrid uh, identity that many people observe. And it's a psychological, it's a illegal, it's a political feelings that need to be considered as part of the overall dimension of uh, humanitarian crisis. So following up on these identity crises, um, do you mind talking about what role uh, Pan-Africanism can play here? Yes. Uh, you know, well, Pan-Africanism has an ideology uh, is set to 
build a cross-border identity. And and then I think uh, Pan-Africanism could play a major role because instead of being limited by the legal identity of a country saying I'm Congolese, I'm uh, Burundian, I'm Kenyan, but you move from that dimension to say I'm an African. And being an African to that sense will allow people to do not feel like they are foreign in their home countries. And this could very much play for people struggling with the hybrid identity because and then the way of reconstructing the human agencies uh, in the African context, they will consider themselves as African rather than uh, uh, labeling them based on a specific country. And this is key, especially in this modern days and time, when we think there is a push for regional integration on the continent, either economic integration, but also allowing human mobilities across countries. So that could be considered as one of the steps toward reducing this identity crisis, but also restoring human agencies of people who have been victims of uh, massive human rights violations, humanitarian crisis, and still up to now struggle to find their real identity beyond probably their ethnicities, which is very much linked to the Black. Um, Now, the book also discusses the interplay between institutional deficits and humanitarian legitimacy. Uh, What is your argument there? Yeah, uh, when humanitarian crisis occurred, or let's say when conflict happens, especially in the context of armed conflict, you have national institutional deficit, which reflect the absence of the national government to control and provide safety and security all across its territories. And in so many cases, uh, you will see that you have armed groups controlling certain regions, controlling uh, big parts of the countries. And this it's so interesting to see that uh, the book was published back then, but uh, the same dynamics are at play today, where you have uh, groups such as, uh, if I may mention one, the M23 today, controlling territories. But then these groups or this armed group, by the fact that they control territories, they are not just controlling dry land. They control entities, jurisdictions, where you have civilians living in those places probably who could not run away from. So, But these civilians need assistance, need humanitarian assistance. So there has been questions of whether we should collaborate with these armed groups uh, or we should talk to them or consider them or give them a sense of uh, credibility in order to open the space uh, for humanitarian convoy or assistance and so on. And this is where I talked about uh, the circumstantial legitimacy and uh, I'm I was very deliberate by putting that circumstantial legitimacy in humanitarian crisis, which fall under humanitarian legitimacy, and saying these groups deserve a circumstantial legitimacy in terms of being considered as credible actor 
not based on the behavior, but based on the fact that they are controlling territories. And if we aim to protect civilians, we have to acknowledge who is the chief of this territory in the basic terms, who has the full control of these jurisdictions. And this is where I agree that we need to establish certain levels of uh, humanitarian legitimacy. One of them is humanitarian legitimacy based on control of territory. In other words, thinking on who has the power over this territory and interact with them or with them as a way, not of giving them a legal status, but as a way of... uh, collaborating so that the civilians who are under the jurisdictions can get the necessary help and assistance. There is another dimension which I elaborated in the book. It's a humanitarian legitimacy based on the action. In other words, we think of certain steps uh, that we need to consider if we need to deal with these uh, authorities or not. And more specifically, this has to do with the human, human right record. And if we as, we assess and consider that the human rights record is a little bit acceptable, we could then move in the direction of creating an open conversation, not again in order to provide them with uh, illegal status, but at least to bring them into space where civilians under their jurisdictions could still get assistance. And this is not only happening, uh, of course, in the book, I talk more uh, the case of the DRC. I will try probably to extrapolate for a few minutes or a few seconds here. When we think of what is happening in Afghanistan, you know, with the Taliban, there's this uh, debate of uh, should we very much consider them as a credible partner to talk with for humanitarian assistance purposes. And this is where the concept of uh, circumstantial uh, legitimacy comes in uh, as part of humanitarian legitimacy. So for them, for instance, it's humanitarian legitimacy based on uh, control. So not an action. On the action side, we can still question the human rights considerations and interpretation and practice. But based on control, they are controlling the country. And we have to talk to them in order to protect and uh, assist civilians who are under their jurisdictions. Thank you. Uh, So now I'd like to turn to transitional public security. Uh, The book argues that this is an important paradigm for addressing uh, the DRC's humanitarian crisis. What is transitional public security uh, and in what ways can it be applied in this context? Yes, uh, in a very practical terms, uh, well, when a country goes through instability and uh, institutional deficit, you realize that uh, sometimes the military are not able to provide safety and security for their people. And uh, in places where you have had human, uh, UN, the United Nations peacekeepers, and other external forces assisting countries to, to provide or restore peace and security, uh, one of the considerations within the uh, transitional public security is the fact that uh, there is an assumption of saying there is no functional harm forces in the country and outsiders who came to help have to transition their responsibility from being the security providers as outsiders 
they need to identify and transition this responsibility to national armed forces as the new security provider and guarantor. And of course, the concept itself was very much developed by the Department of Defense of the United States over the years where this idea of transitioning from U.S. responsibility to host countries' responsibilities came to play. And in the context of the PRC, I consider it, especially in this book, as a critical space where, for instance, the country has been unable in some instances of providing or controlling its territory. And you had uh, places where the UN uh, has control and provide safety and security. And these days you have the Eastern African communities providing security in certain regions. And the context and concept of transitional public security comes into play by asking determinant questions such as what has to happen in order for these outside forces to help or to to leave the country by transferring the responsibility to the DRC forces. And a couple of things were developed in the book, and I will probably pick uh, one of them is... uh, could be rebuilding the army itself as a big process into transitional public security. So how do you rebuild an army? And of course, there's been attempt by creating such as integrations of uh, these harm groups into the national political machineries and how machineries of the DRC, but that did not work. I make a case in uh, the book that uh, this integration did not help much. So there is still a need to rebuild the army. But in the context where the integration of armed forces, armed groups into the national armed forces happened, this goes to the second point of uh, the transitional public security in the book, was that there is an issue of leadership and accountability. Since these armed groups have a certain way of being loyal to a person, not to an institution, that leads to another crisis this time around within the armed forces. So the question of how do we transition, how do we transfer our capabilities and responsibility to host countries in terms of building their home military uh, systems and defense system, it's a of a great concerns and deserves big attention in the context of the TRC and other places where armed groups have opposed the national government. Um, so I'd like to also ask you, what are your recommendations uh, with regards specifically to refugees and internally displaced persons? Yeah, so I think one of my uh, point of recommendation is that we definitely have to think about the returns of refugees, right? There is in the narratives of uh, when do we hand uh, this uh, status of refugees? Uh, do we hand it by considering them as a new citizen of their host countries? Or do we hand this status by saying, well, now we can pack and then go back? Uh, so the first element in the recommendation is the acknowledgement of uh, the fact that refugee status, it's just a legal status at first. So, but 
people into dictators have human agencies and these human agencies need to be put up front so they are not kids who should be moved from left to right and right to left so the first recommendation is to bring back that human consideration into the refugee crisis understanding that these are people with full agency and the second uh, element is when we think of uh, returning refugees to their home countries, there are things that one needs to think about. One should be, for instance, assessing the home country's governance capabilities. Uh, is to see if the place, their home countries still have the legal policy and uh, logistical resources and capabilities to re-host them and provide the basic needs and security before we think of returning refugees in their home countries. And the second uh, recommendation is the fact that we need to be critical in assessing the local security dynamics. It is often easy to say, well, the country A has reached a peace agreement with uh, rebel groups and then of course so the peace settlement is uh, happening we have elections then everything is okay refugees can go back but that is just the top considerations of what is happening at the political level but one of the reasons why people become refugees or internally displaced is because the local spaces have been destabilized which push them to run and leave their places. So in consideration to that point will be a critical assessment of the local security dynamics. If we run because there was no water, just a basic example, going back will necessitate to have water. But if this water is not there, then there is no need to talk about going back, even if the political space has been harmonized. So these are some of the considerations and recommendations for me, I think, deserve more attention. And to the broader sense, a clear understanding of the fact that the humanitarian crisis is still not a logistical crisis. It's a human crisis. And until we discuss the humanity of this crisis, we will not be able to address the real issue. So obviously there's much, much more in the book uh, and we've, we've really only skimmed the surface, but I wanted to ask you, um, is there anything we haven't covered yet that you think is important for listeners to know? Yes, uh, I, I think there are probably one thing which I think it's uh, of interest to me and uh, based on humanitarianism and security is the fact that there is an ongoing transition in the conversations of humanitarian crisis. Uh, over the years, we've had more kind of uh, uh, the peace uh, development and humanitarian uh, nexus where the transition is set to be from uh, humanitarian crisis, for instance, to development uh, project and opportunities, which is really, really great move. But in the book, I focus more on uh, the humanitarian and the security nexus because 
one cannot think of long-term peace building and stability without addressing root causes, root causes, not root causes of conflict, but root causes of human crisis. And in most cases, these are human crises and not logistical crises. I keep insisting on that. Uh, for the DRC, sometimes it's not even a natural resource crisis. It's still a human crisis. So we should probably go beyond uh, the consideration of logistics resources and then think more of that humanity crisis that many people into these uh, conflict zones are experiencing. Thank you for that. Um, so, Ivan, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so, I just want to ask you a final question. You know, uh, th- this book came out into the world in 2020. Uh, we're now in 2023. So, I'm wondering, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working still very much. This is part of my ongoing conversations. I'm very much attached to it. I, I guess until I see clear change. <laughs> but uh, I'm also working on a so major project. One is called the African Walls in the 21st Century. So trying to think of the new or types of uh, factors of stability and instability in Africa in the 21st century beyond the, the traditional walls. And that project is in the, its third year now. We started it in 2020 and uh, we just had a uh, one of the workshops on that this uh, past Friday. And uh, another project which I'm very much working on is uh, peace operation, but looking at uh, this this and misinformation in uh, peacekeeping operations. So those are the two major projects I'm uh, focusing on these days. Those both sound fascinating uh, and also very important. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate it. The book is Ivan Yenda Ilunga's Humanitarianism and Security, Trouble and Hope at the Heart of Africa, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Thank you for listening.